right? The utter absence of New York-style pizza, right? And I was talking with him, and I actually said, I got to stop talking about this because my mouth is watering so much. <laughs> like, this is not good. And what I've found is now that it's not available, now that I can't get something, I desire it all the more. And in the time of the Reformation, I have no idea if they had pizza or not. But I do know one thing that was scarce in that time, and that is the Word of God, particularly in the language of the people. It was scarce, and hardly anyone had it. And because of this scriptural famine, people were hungry for the Word. Now, they didn't realize it at first, because their lives were filled with other things, and the church was holding tightly to things that you couldn't even find in Scripture. But one man who recognized this dilemma was a man named William Tyndale, one of my favorite characters from the Reformation. Now, William Tyndale was born in 1494 to a very wealthy family, and he had the privilege of attending the best schools. He studied theology at Cambridge University, although later he talks about how his study of theology at Cambridge didn't include much of the Bible, so that's interesting. But while studying there, he he came across the teachings of Erasmus, and it actually inspired him. And he, he started to believe that every person should have the copy of scriptures in their own language. He, become, he became convinced of this. It really became the guiding principle, the driving force behind his life. And so he begins translating the entire New Testament and some of the Old Testament into English. Now, this had never been done before. In fact, if you research it, some people actually say that Tyndale helped to form the English language, which is very very intriguing. But he's, he's uh, translating, he's doing this work, and people responded in two different ways, okay? The church authorities did not like it very much. They put a lot of pressure on him. They started to persecute him, and his life was constantly threatened. But for all those who got a copy of Tyndale's Bible, as they called it, they treasured it, and they actually smuggled it to one another. The demand was incredible, and the danger was high. And in 1535, Tyndale's circulation of the Scripture finally caught up with him. And he was arrested, and he was thrown into prison, where he spent over a year in prison. And then, after a year in prison, William Tyndale was actually strangled and then burned at the stake. Now, right before he died, his last words were this. This is what's recorded. He said, Lord, open the King of England's eyes. And just three days later, I'm sorry, three years later, that was actually uh, accomplished. Because what happened was the King of England produced what he called the Great Bible, which was largely based on William Tyndale's work. So God was working through this man, William Tyndale. Today in the U.S., we have the Word of God in abundance, don't we? And yet I'm pretty confident that I can say we do not treasure the Scriptures as much as William Tyndale did. At times, we operate much like they did during the time leading up to the Reformation, where we fill our lives with other things. And and the Scripture does not have the place of prominence that it really should. And if that be the case, our lives will suffer. On the other hand, if we understand the sufficiency of Scripture, if we get this idea of sola, scriptura, where our life is guided by the Word, then we have no other choice but to let it bleed into every area of our life, to let it dominate our life. This is what the reformers fought for, that these words would be so available that every person could read it, that every person could study it, that every person could be changed by it. 2 Timothy 3 
16 and 17. I know you're in Isaiah 66, but here's the scripture. It's up on the screen. All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. That the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Pastor Steve, last week, he made the emphasis, he made the case last week that Scripture is sufficient, and it is. And so this week, we want to notice that if Scripture is sufficient, because it is sufficient, it must permeate our life. And you can say it this way, we have Scripture, but does the Scripture have us? Four ways that we relate to Scripture, and Scripture relates to us. Because the Word of God, as we'll see, is living It relates to us and we relate to it. And if it's going to permeate our life, it should in these areas. First, Scripture over us. We'll look at that. And Scripture under us. Scripture in us. And then Scripture through us. The Word of God is essential for our lives. And if it be removed, uh, there's a big problem. There's a scientific principle that wherever a vacuum is, is formed, something will fill it. Uh, whether it be air or whatever, and the same is true for our lives. If there's a vacuum, a scriptural vacuum, something will fill that. You can mark this down. A scriptural vacuum will be filled with something fleshly. So as we go through this, you're going to see that if these things are not true about our life, then something else is above us, under us, in us, and through us. All right, so let's look first. Scripture over us. Scripture over us. We submit to Scripture. Now, remember Pastor Steve's drawing from last week. Uh, You'll see it up there. Scripture is over the church. Not the church and Scripture together over us. It is Scripture, and then it is the church, and then it is us. We must submit to its authority. Now, there are other authorities in our life. That is true, and we must submit to those authorities. But Scripture is the ultimate authority. And if Scripture and another authority ever conflict, Scripture wins. And Martin Luther, before the Diet of Worms, he said this. He said, I consider myself convicted by the testimony of Holy Scripture, which is my basis. It's what he stood on. My conscience is captive to the Word of God. So in Luther's heart, Scripture had won. He had no other choice but to submit to Scripture and to obey it. And last week we heard the stories of Hugh Latimer and John Wycliffe who made the decision to submit to Scripture, even though they knew that it was going to cost them their very lives. So we ask ourselves today, what does submission to Scripture look like in my life? What attitude should we have towards the Scriptures? Well, if you come to Isaiah 66 and you look at verse 1 and 2, we see the attitude that we should have. Let's read this together. Isaiah 66, 1 and 2, God's Word says this. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me, and what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made, and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look. Notice, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Now, the context here is man building a sanctuary for God. And God says, do you know who I am? I fill the heavens, I I reign from the heavens, and the earth is my footstool. I created everything, and so how are you going to construct a place for me to dwell? Now, when you think about the value of the Word of God, it comes from its author. The reason that this is valuable is because of who spoke it, who wrote it. 
And Isaiah 66 gives us a picture of this God, doesn't it? Heaven is his throne. He rules from the heavens. So his reign is otherworldly. It's amazing. And then it actually says that earth is his footstool. I don't know if you have a footstool in your house, but if today I was chilling on my couch, relaxing, and I said to one of my daughters, hey, sweetheart, could you come over and just get on your hands and knees and be my human ottoman? Um, that'd be kind of demeaning, wouldn't it? <laughs> we would look at that and go, Pastor Mark, that's not appropriate. Well, you know, this is the case. The earth is God's footstool. So that tells us he's just that majestic. He's that majestic that all that's in the earth, even us, are his footstool. Now, he loves us and he cares for us, but just notice the distinction between us and the earth and God. This is the God that we're talking about. The entire earth is his footstool. He created everything in this earth and he did so with simply his voice. He spoke it and it was here. And so when God speaks, we should listen. When God speaks, we should tremble. The text says. Do you notice that? It says, I look to the one who trembles at my word. I think back to the Wizard of Oz, which I just saw the other week again. And remember how Dorothy and the Tin Man and the Lion and the Scarecrow, how they enter that big room and they open the doors and they hear the voice of the wizard thundering. And do you remember their reaction? The whole time their, their knees are visibly shaking like this, the whole time. And in fact, when they get to the lion, he straight up passes out. He's just out. Then they, they pull back the curtain and they see what? This is actually just an elderly gentleman who is pulling some levers and pushing some buttons and all of that. But if we were able to pull back the curtain of heaven, we would see that God is actually much more powerful, much more majestic, much holier than we even thought. And that's what we do when we read the word. We get to see who this God is. Who is the God who breathed this word? And what is he like? This is God speaking. And I'm asking you, and I'm asking myself, do we tremble at his word? Do we tremble at the scriptures? Now, that's a very convicting question, isn't it? I had to think about that myself this week. And I believe we've lost something if we have reduced the Bible to an app on our phone. Now, I'm not knocking you if you're using your phone right now or your tablet. Okay, that's okay. In fact, I have a screenshot of my phone up here, you're going to see, and uh, there you see my Bible app, the Lagos Bible app. It's uh, circled in red so you can find it easily and so you don't check out all my apps. Anyway, it's, I, I'll tell you this, I love technology and I love the Bible. So when they come together, I'm like, it's like Christmas morning. I love it. But notice it's right underneath Android Auto and right above camera. You know, as if it's one tool in my pocket, right? And I remember being a little boy and going to school uh, well, school too, because Christian school, but to church and carry my Bible and having my mom and dad say, be careful with your Bible, you know, treat that with respect. And, you know, sometimes we have gotten a little cavalier with the word of God. It's just one of the things that I have instead of realizing that it is so precious, the word of God. So we need to really think about this. Do I tremble at the word of God? Do I, I mean, have I ever read the word and, and shook inside? Have I ever been afraid that I was a sinner and that God was holy. Now, if Scripture is not our ultimate and true authority, why is that a problem? Why is that a big deal? Well, it's a big deal and it's a problem because something or someone will be an authority in my life. If we've removed the Scripture, 
then something is our authority. And in a lot of cases, it might be ourselves, right? We have made ourselves the authority. I do what I want to do. I don't do what I don't want to do. And my happiness is pretty much the driving force of my life. And I can't talk to you how, I can't tell you how many times I've talked to a man or a woman over, over the years in pastoral ministry who said to me, Pastor Mark, I'm just not happy in my marriage anymore. And I think that the right thing is divorce. Now, I know marriage is hard work. I get that. But what we've done in that instance is we've effectively made ourselves the final authority, right? I have decided that this is best for me. I have decided that this is the right thing, even though we already have a final authority that's spoken on this. Now, perhaps you're a little less self-centered than that, and, you know, yourself is not the authority, but you live to please other people. That is what the driving force of your life is, just so desperately wanting people to like you, to value you. And if we're honest, don't we oftentimes tremble before other people more than we tremble before the Word of God? We're not trembling before this, but we're deathly afraid that we're not going to measure up to the people around us. We're afraid that people won't be impressed with our salary. We're afraid that our kids will embarrass us. And they will, parents, just get used to it, okay? And you're going to embarrass them. It's a beautiful thing. We're so afraid that if people come over to our house, it's not going to look like a magazine. We're beginning to fear that our lives will never be Instagram worthy, right? And so what we've effectively done there is we have allowed other people's opinions to rule us, to to, to drive us, and sometimes people's opinions grip our heart tighter than the Word of God. That's a problem. Because once the Word of God no longer has that place of prominence, of authority, then we make ourselves or somebody else an authority, I've seen this all the time with teenagers and, and with my kids, and I remember back to, to the age when I was a teenager. You know, what God says about me is the truest thing about me. But what John or Jim or whoever, whatever they think is powerful in my life, it, it, it causes me to do all kinds of things. But really what I need to realize is this is the authority. If God says I'm fearfully and wonderfully made, then I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. He, if he says that Jesus loved me enough to, to give his life on the cross for me, then that's a truth that trumps anybody's opinion of me. But unfortunately, a lot of times, we tremble more about other people and their opinions than we do the Word of God. Perhaps it's because we haven't spent enough time reading what he thinks, reading what God says. You know, many people picture Martin Luther before that deed of Worms. They picture him bold and resolute, you know, strong. And yet when you read Martin Luther's account of his own Uh, When he writes about it, he says, he describes himself like this. He says, I was physically fearful and trembling. Now, Martin Luther, he trembled before these authorities. He was scared. I mean, his life was on the line. But I promise you, Martin Luther trembled more at the word of God than those authorities. And I know that because he said, I submit to Scripture. I'm bound by the Scripture. See, the Scripture is more important than you, is what he said. So Scripture over us. We submit to it. And secondly, Scripture under us. We stand on Scripture. It is a firm foundation. Matthew 7, you can flip over to the first book of the New Testament, Matthew chapter 7. And Jesus teaches us about foundations here. And Jesus is is speaking in Matthew 7, in verse 24, if you find verse 24. Here's what he says. Jesus says this, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man, 
who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. We sure have been reminded of the damage that storms can do these last couple weeks, haven't we? And you've seen, like me, on the news, all these um, devastations, you know, whether it be a hurricane or whether it be an earthquake. What's important for these structures is a solid foundation, right? And one of the reasons that uh, earthquakes in Mexico City are particularly damaging is because the whole city is built on soft, dried-out lake bed. And so because of the foundation of the soil being soft, it causes earthquakes to have incredible ramifications, we live in a culture today that is squishy and mushy and anything but solid, right? We, we say, you know, whatever works for you, you know, we say, don't rock the boat and you be you, right? Without the word of God to stand on, our feet are firmly planted in midair. And it's not that different than the time of the Reformation. If you look back and see the way people were operating They were not operating on the foundation of the Word of God. The medieval church had a foundation that was mixed two parts tradition for every one part scripture. And so what ended up happening would would be you look at the church and it, it had become much more about power and much more about tradition than it had become about staying true to the scriptures. And so you had a system where the sale of indulgences made sense to people. But when Martin Luther starts reading the Bible for himself, he starts to examine this foundation and he sees that things had substituted the Word of God. And he actually starts attacking those very things that were the substitution for the Word of God. And church authorities, they didn't take too kindly to having their foundation chipped away at. But I wonder, what things have you and I substituted for the foundation of Scripture? If we're not standing on the Word of God, if, that, if our feet aren't firmly planted on His Word, then what is our foundation. Luther saw a church that relied more on man than the Bible. And I wonder, could we be guilty of the same? Could we sometimes put our faith and our trust and our foundation more on mankind, the wisdom of men, than we do the wisdom of the Word of God? You know, like it or not, we who live in this world are all susceptible to the spirit of the age. And there's so many blogs and YouTube channels and celebrities and books and all this stuff, with all of this information at our fingertips, we have so much. It's very easy for us to become just deluged with incessant worldliness. I mean, don't you feel sometimes as a Christian, right? You feel like a flood of worldliness, whether you go to the workplace or going to school or just walking the mall or whatever, you just feel like, man, that, this world is worldly. Our children are marinating in a culture of therapeutic pluralism. And what I mean by that is, hey, whatever way you want to go, whatever makes you feel good, whatever makes you feel better, whatever works for you, with all this coming at us, we have to ask ourselves, how robust is, the, is my intake of the Scriptures? How strong is the foundation that I stand on? Many of us have a foundation that is kind of an amalgamation of Bible and Pinterest quotes and self-help books and all this stuff. And the problem with that is it's not going to stand up when the storms come. And there's nothing wrong with learning from all the different sources that God gives us and all the things that we have available today. But only the Word of God, I remind you, according to 2 Timothy 3, 
is able to make us complete and equipped for every good work. Nothing else can do that. And when the storms of life come, the only thing that's going to do is a rock-solid foundation of the promises of God that we find in Scripture. When life is falling apart, you need a trustworthy foundation. You know, when you're sitting by the bedside and somebody you love is passing away, or when you lose that job that provides for your family, or when your child looks at you and says, I don't believe in Christianity anymore, mom and dad, the only thing that's going to do is the Word of God, not positive platitudes. We need the Word of God. We need Scripture under us, and we stand on the Word. Scripture over us, Scripture under us, and then let's look at Scripture in us. And here's where I, I think it relates really closely to the Reformation, so I want to spend a little time here. We meditate on Scripture, Scripture in us. The Word of God can only be our foundation if we're taking it in, if we're reading it, if we're studying it, or we don't have that foundation Colossians 3.16 says this to us, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And we're told that the word is supposed to dwell in us richly. And this is in the context of corporate worship, right? Because if you look at the word, the, the pronoun you, it's actually plural. You as a church, let the word of Christ dwell in you, us, richly. And so everything we do at Bethel Church, everything we do in this service needs to be dominated by the word of God. The preaching, the singing, the fellowshipping, the Bible studies, our conversations, you know, everything is by the word of God. And yet, if your only intake of the scriptures is here Sunday morning, and you're missing out, you're not only missing out, your life is mimicking the lives of those living in the days of the Reformation where the only thing they got as far as Scripture was from their authorities. They relied on their authorities to tell them what the Word said. I mean, after all, the priests were the professionals, right? They understood the Bible. Except that the Bible was never meant to be hoarded by an elite few. Never. It's meant for the common man. How do I know that? Well, one example I'll give you is this. When God decided to breathe into and inspire the New Testament writers, he chose to use a language called Koine Greek. And th there were other loftier forms of Greek he could have used. But he used Koine Greek, and the word Koine means common. It was the language that everyone spoke. In fact, it was a time in the world where almost everyone knew that language. The point is this. God desired for all people to have the word. And one of the truths of the Reformation was that this was rediscovered. The fact that the Bible is the people's book. That's a term that comes from the Reformation. The Bible is the people's book. Not the professional's book or the clergy's book, but the people's book. In fact, Tyndale himself was engaged in a conversation one day with a fellow, uh, uh, with a fellow priest. And they were talking about the need for Scripture in the English language. Tyndale said, we have to have the scripture in our language, in the common person's language. And his compadre didn't agree. He, he, he said this. He said, as long as people have the, the Bishop of Rome's laws, the scriptures are not needed. To which Tyndale replied, I defy the Pope and all his laws. If God spare my life, I will make a boy that driveth the plow know more of the scripture than thou dost. And that's a classic quote from the Reformation right there that all people, regardless of their occupation, their background, would have the Scriptures. And in fact, during this time, for, for the very first time, they started to produce Bibles in a pocket-sized 
format. One of the reasons for that was it was easier to smuggle because it was actually illegal to have an English Bible during this time. But another reason was it was portable. You could take it with you. It was accessible. And so the word started to spread in ways that it never had before. It was the people's book. And it made me think of the origin of Volkswagen. You guys know what Volkswagen is in German? The people's car, right? The people's car. In fact, if you can read all about the history, quite interesting. Or probably talk to Harry Beamer, he probably knows, all right? The Volkswagen's origin is fascinating. A guy named Ferdinand Porsche, he's put out some other cars that are a little nicer than Volkswagen's. And he decided in the 1920s that it was important for the common man to be able to have a car, afford a car, for one to be designed specifically for the common man because his other cars apparently weren't, okay? And I would love a Porsche. Let me just tell you, I would love probably like a silver Porsche uh, 911 Carrera S, you know, maybe some like saddle brown leather interior or red. Um, But let's be real here. I need a common man's car, okay? I need a people's car. (laughs) That's what I need. In the time of William Tyndale, the scriptures were like a Porsche. They were only enjoyed by an elite few. And so Tyndale, he labors intensely to make sure that every person can read the Word of God, that every person has it accessible. And one of the things we must learn, we absolutely must learn from the Reformation, is that God's Word is designed for every single Christian. Every single person should have access to the Word of God, and every person should be reading the Word of God on their own. Now, great benefit from Bible studies and reading the Word and studying the Word in community. We have some great women's Bible studies here. We have some men's Bible studies. They're excellent. that just started up as well. And there is something really important about reading the Word in community and experiencing it, hearing a sermon together like this. But don't ever think for a second that you can't read the Scriptures on your own, whether you're a child, a teen, or an adult. The Word is for all of us. See, that was a fundamental error of the medieval church that the common man shouldn't meddle with the scriptures. You know, leave it to the professionals. And the church authority had a stranglehold on the truth until the reformers released it to the people. You might say, but wait, can the average Joe actually understand the Bible? Can the average guy or girl, maybe without a lot of education, can they really get this book? I mean, we've all read a couple passages that seemed cryptic, right? Like, I have no idea what that's talking about. And there are some pretty weighty and thick passages in the Bible. But to answer that question, we, we have to consider a doctrine called illumination. And it's found in the Word of God in John 16 and some other passages. And it's this truth that the Holy Spirit leads us into truth. That the Holy Spirit opens our eyes and opens our heart and helps us understand this Word. So look at John 16, 13 on the screen. When the Spirit of truth comes, Jesus is speaking here, he says, He will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will declare to you the things that are to come. And then 1 Corinthians 2, verse 12 through 14, now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. Verse 14, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. 
Here's something you need to understand, and that is that reading this book is a supernatural experience. It's a lot different than just reading Aesop's fables and trying to figure out what's the moral of the story. Because something is happening when I open this book and I read these words. It is a spiritual endeavor. The Holy Spirit is involved. The Bible says about itself in Hebrews 4 that it's living, that it's active. There is no other book like that. Now, when I was a kid, I would sit there and go, is the Bible going to like show up on a different part of my room? Is it, is it like alive? You know, like that? Well, no, not exactly. Uh, I guess God can do anything. But it, it really is about this. When you read the word, the Holy Spirit is doing something and there is a supernatural experience that's happening. So if you don't have the Holy Spirit, you can't truly grasp what God wants you to understand from the word. You need the Holy Spirit in order to understand it. Now that gives us hope, doesn't it? That gives us hope because some of you don't like to read very much. <laughs> some of you find it difficult to read. To be honest, you just don't like to do it. But if the Holy Spirit is in you and you have him, then you have everything you need to understand the word. Granted, we learn more and more the more we study. And there are some great teachers that can teach us a whole lot. But all I'm saying is that the Bible teaches us the Holy Spirit is working when we read this, this book. We have what we need. So my advice to you, especially if you don't like to read very much, I mean, you can listen to the audio Bibles, and that's great. I recommend that to you. But don't shy away from opening the book and reading it. And here's what you need to do. You, you pray to God, and you say, God, you know that I find it difficult to understand this passage or whatever, but I'm asking you to work by your Spirit to open the eyes of my heart to help me understand it. Because the Holy Spirit does that work. I've heard all kinds of, of stories of people, you know, who were... Uh, very uneducated, who God used mightily in, with the word. I've heard stories of people who were completely drunk, plastered, that the word of God was preached to them and they heard it and it affected their heart. The word of God is powerful. The word of God is mighty. First Peter 2, 2 through 3 says this, like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Do you crave the Word of God? Do you long for the milk of the Word of God? Now, if we're honest, not any of us always craves the Word of God, right? We get up in the morning, we have some other things we might like to accomplish besides reading the Scriptures. I was in an elder meeting the other week with the elders that God has called to this congregation. I just want you to know that this group of men who are godly and humble, and one of the brothers said, you know what, guys, I have to confess that recently I haven't craved the Word of God much. And God got a hold of my heart, and he, he convicted me of that. And now I've been in the Word the last couple of days, and I've been really enjoying it. That's pretty awesome that we're able to admit that, hey, we all struggle with this. None of us have arrived. None of us um, always crave the Word of God. But the Bible says, crave it, desire it, long for it. So what do you do when you don't crave the Word of God? When you come out of this place and you say, that was a great sermon, but, like, I'm just not feeling it. Well, then do this. Again, pray and say, God, I need you to change my cravings. I need you to change my heart because, quite honestly, I just don't have much desire right now. God will do that. Pray and plead with God because Scripture needs to be in us. It's over us. It's under us. It has to be in us. And then lastly, through us. Scripture through us. We live out the Scripture. And I want you to consider, again, Matthew 7. We were in there uh, in that text just a little bit ago, Matthew 7, Jesus says, the one who builds a strong foundation is the one who hears his word and does it. Who hears it 
and does it. And Jesus makes it pretty clear that it's not enough to just have the Word of God or even to read the Word of God, but we actually have to practice it. The Word has to work through us and out of us. During the Reformation, making the Scripture accessible was crucial. It's only half the battle. Right? There's a whole other aspect to this. It only fixes half of the problem. To have the Word of God, we actually have to read it and put it into practice. In most places around the world, including the United States, Scripture is available, but it's often not applied. And it may even be read, but there's no response to it. And this is illustrated in the book of James. You remember in the book of James where the author says this. He says, uh, going to the Word of God is like looking in a mirror, Right? And you see yourself and and what you need to do, how you need to change. And some people just walk away from the mirror and they don't do anything about it. It's like looking in the mirror, seeing your hair is all jacked up and just being like, all right, cool, and just going away. Um, The idea is that's not what the Word is intended to do. The Word is intended to change us, to work through us. And Jesus says, if you want a strong foundation, you have to actually put it into practice. You have to do it. The word is supposed to seep into our life. And and even as I'm saying this, you know, I'm convicted, right? It's supposed to seep into our life. It's supposed to invade our heart. It's supposed to course through our veins. That's what the word is supposed to do. It's not relegated to an app on our phone. It's something that takes over. It's something that dominates our life, at least it's supposed to. And we're to be doers of the word, not simply hearers. Last week I had the opportunity to go with Pastor Steve and Pastor... Uh, Dan and Pastor Dexter to the BMW Championship. I forgot to mention first service. We were actually at a conference. It was a very spiritual endeavor. And then we went to the BMW Championships. Now, when we went to the BMW Championship, I was hoping it was a car thing. I didn't realize it's a golf thing. Um, I've never golfed in my life. Um, It was a really neat experience, I will tell you. I got to understand a lot more about golf. And for a second, I thought, "Ah, I might be able to do that. I've never once golf. And so I stand before you today as a hearer of golf and not a doer. I've never once even tried, never even put it into practice. And that cannot be the situation with the Word of God. We cannot just take it in and be like, oh, isn't that special? And then, and then walk away, right? We need to always be thinking, while you hear a sermon like this, while you read your morning devotions, what am I supposed to do with this? Like, so what? what? How does it affect my life? What do I now go home and do as a dad? What do I do as a mom or as a teen or as a child? Like, God, what do you want me to do with that? We always have to be trying to apply this. So I'm going to give you a few here. I'm going to give you a couple ways to apply this as you go home, particularly for parents and especially dads. But you could... Um, If you don't have a devotional, you're not reading any kind of, you have no devotional walk right now. There are all kinds of resources available to you. Free devotionals, apps you can download. One that I throw out to you is something called She Reads Truth or He Reads Truth. Simple, it's basic, um, it's not fancy, but it's really nice and it works for people. And I've often given that to teens or adults because it kind of can work for both. But there are a ton out there. Go download a devotional. Just make sure the devotional is word-centered, you know, not some story that's loosely connected to a scripture. Be in the word. Or maybe you could start a reading plan. Just Google that. There are all kinds of reading plans. You could read through the Bible in a year. Great experience. I tend to uh, prefer depth to breadth, but what a great way to get an understanding of the scriptures by reading through it in a year. I set my reading plan. I, I tweak it to be three years, so... I just like to spend more time in it. But do whatever you want. Find a reading plan. Stick with it. Uh, Maybe as a family, you could begin reading a verse of the day. 
Maybe you could do this in the morning before school or if your house is crazy, maybe at dinner time is the only time you sit down together, read a verse. And like there again, you can find all kinds of apps and things that, that give you a verse of the day. Try that. Um, you could start to read some scripture to your child as you tuck them in. You know, just one verse and then say, you know, what do you think that means for school tomorrow? What do you think that means for your life? And start to talk about the scriptures. One of the worst things you can do for your family is create a chasm between church and home. You know, that home looks so different from church. You know, that's church stuff. We don't really talk about that here. I remember, I, I think I might have shared this before, but I remember a story about uh, a guy. Uh, he, he shared that when he was a teen, his dad would always try to talk to him about the Bible. And he'd be like, yeah, yeah, dad, whatever. And his dad would come into his room and he'd sit on the, the bed and he'd be like, you know what I read today in my devotions? He'd say something and be like, all right. And he'd get up and he'd leave. And the son said, it was really awkward. Like it, it didn't have anything to do with anything. It was just out of the blue. But he remembered the fact that his dad would just talk to him about his personal devotions. That's cool. I mean, you don't even have to, have a good segue. You have to be like, you know what that reminds me of? You don't even have to do that. You can just be like, hey, this is what I read today. And your kids will respect you for that. Just start doing something. Now, I, I'm going to tell you this. I, you know, I'm standing here as a pastor, and I'm convicted because I don't always do such a great job at this. I try, but I forget, and life is busy. And this is not condemning. This is, hey, take a step in this direction. Most of our homes need to be more like a church, you know, and, and most of us dads need to be more like pastors, whatever your occupation is. And you say, well, I didn't go to seminary. Yeah, well, you don't need to. The, the truth is you could open an app and click the verse of the day and read it, and that's pastoring your kids. That's actually shepherding them. That's taking a step to show them that the, 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 the Bible invades our home. It invades our life. Let's encourage one another as a family. Let's encourage one another as friends, Right? to apply the scriptures. Let's celebrate when the scriptures are obeyed. The word of God is meant to be lived out and applied. In the 16th century, the scriptures were held hostage in an ivory tower. But with the wake of the reformers, it was released to the common folk. It was put in the, in the, in the homes. It was put in the pubs. It was put in the streets. And we're talking about a straight-up revolution here where the average person could read the Bible. It was put into the farmer's pocket, you know? And here's the beautiful consequence of that. The Word of God began to reform society. It began to change, you know, starting with the, the corrupt hierarchy of the church, but then flowing down, you know, to, to, to the average person. Their lives started to be changed. The Word started to work through people. And today, the Word has implications for us as well. Right, the Word has something to say to us. It has something to say about our vocation at, in the office or in the factory, in the classroom, you know, on the sports field, wherever you are, the, the Word comes to bear. In fact, I could say this. We could go so far as to say that only Scripture, only Scripture has what we need to navigate this life in this beautiful but broken world. Only Scripture. And there's a lot of other stuff out there. You know, one of the buzzwords today is, um, and I've seen this with, you know, young people and everything, is self-care. More than any other time in history, they say, people are talking about self-care, caring for yourself, you know, self-improvement, that kind of thing. There's blogs and there's books on how to be a better you and how to make peace with the universe and uh, how this diet is going to revolutionize your life. And all those things can bring improvement. In the same way that painting your house or redecorating can bring improvement. But if you want to build a foundation, if you want a complete overhaul, you need the Word of God. Only the Word of God 
stands the test of time. Only the word of God is sufficient for what we need. And I know there's a lot of good stuff out there. You know, there, there's a lot of great resources, but here's what happens. It's the same thing as it happened in the Reformation. We start to look to those other things first. We, let to, we, we start to let those things kind of fill our mind. And before going to the Word, we're quick to go to that blog or we're quick to go to that expert on whatever it is. And before we know it, we have a foundation that's quite a mixture. And we rarely go to the Word of God because it seems old and it seems outdated. And the whole point of Sola Scriptura is not that it is the only form of truth, but that it is the supreme form of truth. And quite frankly, it's all we need. It's all we actually need for life and for godliness. Here's what happens. As you study this book and as I study this book, something happens. We begin to understand that there's a central narrative, a central story that's woven throughout this book. And it's, it's not so much about improving us. It's about redeeming us. And it's not so much about self-care. It's about self-sacrifice. And so we read about Jesus Christ who becomes a man, who takes on flesh and lives a life on this earth, and then he dies on a cross in our place. He becomes sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. You see, when you understand God's care for us, that's when your life starts to truly take shape, when, when care starts to actually happen. And so long as we fill ourselves with all these other ways to improve, and we forget about the fact that Jesus Christ loved us so much that he died for us, that we're redeemed that we are children of God, then we're missing it. This is the work of the word. This is why we submit under its authority. This is why we stand on it, why we meditate on it, and why, while as we do that, God works the word through us, and out of that comes obedience, and we walk with him. We have scripture, but does scripture have us? 